From Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Meltem, you know what really grinds my gears? Tell me, Jill. We give banks our cash and get basically nothing in exchange. Talk about opportunity cost of capital. You know, it makes me sad every time I look at my bank account. Celsius Network is on a mission to change that. With their super easy mobile app, you can actually earn passive income up to 7% per year in a safe and secure way. Interest is paid out every week and there are no fees or penalties ever. If you head over to Celsius and tell them we sent you, they'll give you $10 bonus in Bitcoin after your first deposit greater than $500. Use code GEARS when signing up or go to celsius.network slash GEARS for more information. The beginnings of mathematics were grounded in everyday concerns. Shepherds needed to track their flocks. Farmers needed to weigh the grain they reaped in the harvest tax collectors had to decide how many cows or chickens each peasant owed the king. Out of such practical demands came the invention of numbers. At first, they were tallied on fingers and toes. Later, they were scratched on animal bones. As their representation evolved from scratches to symbols, numbers facilitated everything from taxation to trade to accounting and census taking. This excerpt is from the opening of Stephen Strogatz's new book, Infinite Powers. And for those of you who love math, I highly recommend reading it. What I love about this passage is it highlights why we created numbers. We created numbers to track value, to measure, to identify, and to really evaluate what belongs where and to whom. Now, as you might imagine, all of these things are relative. Clever people have spent their life's work trying to figure out how to capture this relativity of numbers. And this is the beating heart of modern finance. So if I have $100 today, I want to invest it so that my $100 will enable me to buy at least the same basket of goods that I could buy today at some point in the future. The rate at which the price of goods increases is known as inflation, and let's say it's 2% per year. So I know that I need an investment that returns at least 2% in the next year. How do I choose what to invest my $100 in? This is the precise challenge that investors of all stripes must find an answer to. As with everything else, the choice is relative. What's your appetite for risk? How much of your net worth does that $100 represent? How long can you afford to keep that $100 invested? These are all questions that determine how people think about investing. And after you've made that choice of how to invest the $100, your work is not done. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Then the question becomes, 
how do you measure if you're any good at investing? Jill, do you ever ask yourself this? Am I any good at this? Mostly in 2017, I was asking myself that. (laughs) (laughs) How do you figure out if you've made the best choices possible in picking stocks, bonds, or shit coins to buy? This question has been explored by some of the most celebrated minds in the domain of economics and mathematics over the last 60 years. And it's given us a much deeper understanding of the relationships between risk, reward, and value in markets. Also, many Nobel Prizes. (laughs) So what we're going to talk about in today's episode, as you might have guessed, is how we define and measure performance, which is as much art as it is science. In fact, some investors have made performance theater out of their efforts to measure this performance and justify just why they should get paid billions of dollars to lose money for their investors. And we'll talk more about hedge funds later. But as with all things in life, investing, performance, this is everything if you're in finance. All right. So let's begin where we always do. Why does any of this matter? So, But why, Jill? But why? <laughs> Who cares? So for retail investors, investment performance still matters, even though your paycheck, your salary may not be depending on it. The performance of your investments as a retail investor may determine whether or not you will enjoy a comfortable retirement, whether you'll have enough money to send your children to college, whether you'll have enough money to take your kids to Disney World. Likewise, the pension plans, foundations, and other institutional investors want to monitor the performance of their investments to ensure that the assets will be sufficient to meet their needs. In fact, Moody's estimates that the U.S. public pension shortfall is over $4 trillion. That means that government workers in the U.S. are relying on pensions that simply aren't there, at least not yet. And the managers overseeing these portfolios have to generate a much higher rate of return with the time remaining before the pensions are due to be paid out. In fact, um, there are many investment schemes like this, Jill, including Social Security, that many retail investors rely on uh, for their retirement. And so thinking about investment performance, while you may not do it actively, um, it's really paramount to ensuring that we have enough resources for older generations um, to live comfortably in retirement. So this is a huge problem. Uh, For professional investors, it's a little different. The performance of a portfolio or fund if you manage money for a living, determines how you get paid. And there's two factors of this. Um, One is assets under management, or AUM, which you've probably heard thrown around in the crypto industry. But really, assets under management defines the value of the assets in the portfolio you manage. So as the value of the portfolio rises, or if it falls, you get paid either more or less. So if you have a really simple strategy, like an ETF or an index fund that just attempts to track a particular sector of the market, investors typically pay a fairly low management fee. It tends to be around half a percent of the total value of assets under manager at management that gets paid to that manager every year. So if you have an ETF of Vanguard, which I do in my 401k, um, Vanguard takes a small percentage of the value of that portfolio every year to pay for its staff, um, its resources, all of the things you consume for being an investor. If you have a more cutting edge strategy, like a Bitcoin ETF, the rate can be as high as 25 or 3%. And for really actively managed strategies that include some sort of proprietary edge, which we'll talk about, like 
maybe a hedge fund, a private equity firm, or a venture fund, you don't only pay a management fee on the assets that are in that portfolio, you also pay an additional 20% of every dollar of return that is generated after the initial principal you invested is repaid. So if there are really slight differences in how that performance is calculated, there can be really massive impacts on how much money an investor gets back and how much money managers will earn for managing that portfolio. So if investors use performance to reward money managers, then money managers have an obvious incentive to manipulate their performance score. This is why investor performance is often rewarded based on a relative measure to that of other investors. Knowing the return achieved by an investment management company or fund manager is only part of the process of performance evaluation. You probably know investment management is a competitive industry. Both investors and investment management companies will want to know how fund managers have performed relative to familiar and relevant financial market benchmarks. So, for example, a stock index such as the S&P 500 index in the United States is often used as a benchmark or point of comparison. But that's not all. They'll also often want to know how they've performed relative to their peers, i.e. how other managers deploying similar strategies have performed. In addition, interested parties such as those who are giving them money will also want to know how the fund manager achieved the performance. For example, whether the performance was the result of skill or luck, or perhaps the result of just excessive risk taking. (laughs) We can't yet differentiate between skill and luck in most cases, but we can tell when someone's taking way too much risk. And we'll talk about some of that later as well. But before we delve into all of this, just a final word, how your portfolio's performance is judged, the benchmark against which it's being measured, all of this can really fundamentally change the way you put a portfolio together. So it's absolutely essential that you use the right benchmarks when you're measuring success in your investing or the investing that someone else does on your behalf. So today, we're going to delve into some of the theory and practice of measures of financial performance. We'll talk a bit about the challenges of applying this in crypto markets and the fact that it's rarely applied, if at all, and why this matters so much. I'm really excited about this conversation. This is a topic that grinds my gears, and this is what I studied academically for six years of my life. So let's nerd out. You ready, Let's Jenna? dive in. Let's go. <laughs> Before we go forward, um, I'm going to tell another quick nerdy story because, Jill, you know I love a good story, right? <laughs> Hit me with it. Let's go. What is it this time? Uh, You're going to hate me for this one, but here we go. So uh, one of the most fascinating concepts that humans have observed for a long time but could not confirm until the 20th century was that of time and the measure of its passage not being universal, but in fact relative. So how are we going to bridge time, time theory of relativity and finance? (laughs) Well, um, time dilation um, is really interesting phenomenon. There's tons of great videos on it if you're into that type of stuff. But as we all know, hours, as measured by clocks, are only relevant as a benchmark by which we measure the passage of time, right? Time is an arbitrary thing that we've made up as humans based on our revolution around fixed points, well, relative points like the sun and how often we rotate around it, etc. So distance 
is relative to a fixed or moving point. And space and time are relative to how our planet, the Earth, is moving through space compared to all of these other points in space. And while the implications of modern finance may not appear to be as fun or as meaningful as the implications of modern physics, <laughs> markets and performance also rely on something called relative performance. All right, take us down the black hole now. Show me that picture of the black hole. <laughs> let me let me pull out this photo. But look, just like time is relative um, and an abstract concept that we've created these ideas like hours and minutes to measure, money is also just a measure that we created to enable trading a relative value, right? So the idea of money is relative. A sheep can be worth 100 chickens. That's a relative value unit. One Bitcoin is worth 5,000 US dollars. That's an absolute measure because dollars are a base unit for us measuring spend capability because we live in a dollar world. Um, and so I just want to go into this conversation on absolute and relative using this idea that many things in life, we don't really know how to measure them. How do I measure what an idea is worth? How do I measure what a Bitcoin is worth? Well, we do our best using relative concepts, right? All right. I like it. I like it. Comparing fund performance to space-time theory. Let's go. <laughs> so, not can I not everything. More? Can I charge more because that was a good analogy? Do you think? <laughs> for management fee for the amazing physics analogies. How about it? <laughs> it's good marketing anyway. It's all marketing. But so not everything is actually relative though, right? There is still such a thing as absolute value, absolute performance metrics. I don't know if there's such a thing as absolute time. I'll probably have to ask you later about that. But absolute return in finance, I mean, that's simply whatever an asset or a portfolio has returned over a certain period. It's a familiar term to most investors. Values can be quickly found in stock and mutual fund prospectuses. It's easy to calculate. You take the value of an asset at the starting point, and then you look at it at the ending point of your measurement period, and that percent change in dollar value is your absolute return. Now, I guess something that you're pointing out here, Meltem, is that it's we're using dollar value whenever we're right. talking about the absolute return, which right. we'll get into this later, I know, but in crypto, who's to say if that applies, whether it should be dollars or Bitcoin, or if you're talking about the Ethereum token world, maybe Ethereum, but I don't want to get ahead of myself here. The reality is absolute return, this measure doesn't take into effect into consideration the fact that investors have choices. It relies on investors to compare returns when researching alternatives. Exactly. And so instead of using this absolute measure, typically in dollars, many investors use relative return their return relative to something else, because that really gives them insight, A, into the performance of an investment relative to a benchmark, but also B, um, it can help them understand what their spending power is in real terms. So for example, like Jill mentioned at the start of this episode, if the benchmark you choose is the rate of inflation, because you want your $100 today to allow you to buy the same things at any point in the future, then that provides an investor with growth of money 
in real terms, right? Relatively speaking, you can buy the same amount of stuff with that money, even though it's absolute value as the number of dollars may have changed. The challenge is uh, finding these relative returns requires a lot of work to calculate, and it requires investors to pick what benchmark they want to use. Is it inflation? Is it the general market? And unless the benchmark chosen is actually that rate of inflation, relative return doesn't really provide you with an indication of real growth. So for example, bear with me here, we're going to throw out some numbers. The relative return of your portfolio to the stock market could be positive 10%. However, if the stock market went down this year, then the absolute return of your investment could be negative 20%, meaning you lost 20 cents of every dollar you invested. And then the actual absolute return of the benchmark was negative 30%, meaning the market puked up 30 cents of every dollar. So again, these games that people play with performance can be really tricky. They're misleading. And sometimes relative benchmarking can actually have a negative effect on your ability to produce your goals and positive outcomes for your net worth. So with that, let's talk a little bit about how people pick what to compare to, right? Because there are a lot of choices you have. Let's dive in. All right. So let's talk about benchmarks. Benchmarks. What a word. (laughs) So there are a few widely used benchmarks or reference rates that people tend to use in finance. These are like fixed points for measuring distance to determine how something is performing. The first one that we've got to talk about is interest rate, or how much you will A, pay to borrow a dollar, or B, earn to lend a dollar. So as as we've discussed in the episode on debt, the interest rate will vary based on the length of the loan, based on the risk of the loan. And so the standard interest rate used is typically the Fed funds rate as the interest rate at which the depository institutions like banks and credit unions lend reserve balances to other depository institutions overnight on an uncollateralized basis. The Fed funds rate is an important benchmark in financial markets, and it's often called the risk-free rate, or the RFR, since U.S. government debt is considered to be a fairly riskless asset. Yeah, I have a lot of PTSD of RFR in um, calculating all sorts of financial formulas. (laughs) And it's really relevant in um, capital asset pricing model, which is how companies determine the optimal ratio of equity and debt, um, but also in options pricing theory, which we'll get into at a very high level. Um, Another implication of interest rate, which is interesting, is LIBOR, which is the London Interbank Overnight Rate. It's like the UK equivalent of the Fed funds rate. And what's interesting interesting about LIBOR, and Jill, you may remember this well from your days on the trading desk, is it's a rate that's set by a handful of British banks. And in a stunning show of modern day cartel behavior, it was famously manipulated by traders at these banks during the 2008 crisis, who basically colluded via Bloomberg Instant Messenger to manipulate the LIBOR rate to serve their own trading desk purposes. It was insane. I do recall this. Yeah, Just reading, you can... I'll put it in the show notes. You can read some of the transcripts back and forth. But basically, these traders are like, hey, can you edge it up another couple basis points? And they were like, yeah, we got you. Don't worry. It, it was nuts. Yeah, not, um, not a good showing for the banking industry. Well, look, they did it again and again and again. 
<laughs> so, you know, I'm not not really sure what it curtailed. Um, but as you'll recall from the episode on liquidity, many companies have a balance sheet line item called cash equivalents. And it's important to note that that line item represents very low yield instruments like government debt that are highly liquid and effectively as exchangeable as cash. And so in a lot of ways, interest rate really represents the idea of earning riskless return. So that's interesting. Um, The second rate that people often talk about is the market rate of return, which is denoted as RM. So RFR, risk-free rate of return, RM, market rate of return. And the market rate of return is just like it sounds, what could you earn in the general quote-unquote market? Now, the idea of the market is relative. So if you're in the US, um, it would be defined by the S&P 500, which is an American stock market index that is based on the market capitalization of the 500 largest companies that have stock listed on the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, or CBOE, BZX. These are three different trading venues in the US. Um, And so the S&P 500 is really a measure of how the top 500 equities in the US are performing. That's right. And beyond that, we also can get into industry-specific and also asset class-specific benchmark rates. So often for less liquid asset classes without easily accessible benchmarks, the best method to evaluate relative to performance is to define a list of peers, which could include a cross-section of traditional mutual funds, equity or fixed income indices, and other hedge funds with similar strategies. For specific asset classes like hedge funds, PE, or VC, industry bodies like Morningstar, Zephyr, and others publish often very expensive benchmark rates by strategy and by market. So for example, if you're an investor in a global macro fund that deploys a long short strategy, don't worry about what that means if you don't know, but it's basically a difference in asset class and strategy, you can compare the performance of your fund as an investor to an aggregated performance of all managers deploying that strategy. Now, a good fund should usually perform in the top quartiles for each period being analyzed in order to prove its alpha generating ability. But we haven't yet defined alpha. We know that. And we'll get into that in a minute. (laughs) The interesting thing about less liquid investment strategies is that it can take three or four years for a new manager to get enough data to prove their ability to generate return. So for example, if you're looking at a new venture fund manager who's never managed money before and you don't have anything to compare it to, that manager will typically have three or four years to prove that they can generate alpha or outsized returns. This is what makes the field of investing in these illiquid strategies so interesting. Um, You typically have a lot of ways that you're trying to evaluate whether or not the manager you gave your money to is going to be any good. But you really don't have anything to go on, especially not in venture capital, where it can take three or four years for companies to raise their next round and therefore for the portfolio to accrue more value. So there is one last metric I want to talk about that's interesting here, and that is something called the Sharpe Ratio. Uh, We don't need to delve into how it's calculated, but if you've ever taken a financial engineering class, you know the Sharpe Ratio and you hate it. (laughs) So this ratio is specific to individual funds or strategies, and it indicates how much additional return you obtain for each level of risk you take. 
So this is interesting because it creates a relationship between the risk you take as a manager and whether or not that additional risk you took led to your investors being compensated with more return. So sharp ratio is typically one. If it's greater than one, it means you're doing good. And if it's lower than one, it's typically not looking so good. It means you took a lot of risk unnecessarily. But in any case, there are all of these inputs that go into the Sharpe ratio. And one of these things is the risk-free rate. And so sharp ratios tend to be more attractive during periods of low interest rates when you know, you're not earning a lot of return for just parking your money in safe assets. You're going to probably earn more return by taking a bit more risk. And when interest rates are higher, sharp ratios will look less attractive because lower risk strategies are still going to generate return that outperforms some of these benchmarks. So this is just an interesting way of reframing the relationship that risk and return have. Because fundamentally, as an investor, what you're always doing is trying to balance risk and return. Okay, great. So we've just taken it from the top on benchmarks. We've got interest rates, we've got market rate of return, industry-specific and asset class-specific benchmarks, and the Sharpe ratio. Now, a couple of interesting things to note in all of this. The first one I want to touch on is on interest rates, specifically around OIS and LIBOR. Now, these might sound like basically the same things, just in two different geographies, and more or less, usually they are. Oh, but, Jill, what's OIS? Uh, the overnight indexed swap. So okay. that, again, is this window of overnight uh, exchange between banks and credit unions and other depository institutions that we mentioned earlier. That's for the United States. Now, something that's interesting to note is that often the OIS and LIBOR tend to trade at right around the same rate. In 2008, however, that rate that spread between the two blew out to about three and a half percent, which is unheard of. Yeah, and that of course happened. <laughs> that of course happened because suddenly not all banks were created equal. And so if you were taking a loan from Deutsche Bank or you were making a loan to Citigroup or making a loan to Lehman Brothers, that suddenly had very different indications for what and your risk profile was. By the way, Jill, this goes back to our episode on the liquidity episode 14 for those who haven't listened to it because the liquidity profiles of these banks changed dramatically right that's right it was all about how much capital they had on hand and, and the so, risk you were taking it's all about that risk exactly and so my point here with this is i want to emphasize this again is another great case of financial misnomers ding 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 where we call these things the risk free rate and really that's not the risk free rate at all there is a lot of risk involved potentially depending on the market conditions and these things really are not equivalent so that's the first thing i wanted to mention I agree with you 100%, Jill. Um, but again, we have to find ways to categorize, classify, because if we don't, the world becomes infinitely complex, right? And formulas only work if I have nice little numbers to plug in. <laughs> That's right. And if, we have nice, and if we have nice little buckets to put things in, right, to categorize. This is, this is mathematicism at its finest, by the way. <laughs> it's mystical math. So the other... 
the other category is the categorization issue that I wanted to cover here briefly is that of hedge funds versus mutual funds. Mm. Now, these often get sort of lumped in the same category or confused, but there's one major difference between a hedge fund and a mutual fund. And people will give you all different kinds of answers to that question of what's the difference. They'll say hedge funds adopt more aggressive strategies, hedge funds can go short, hedge funds take uh, institutional money, whereas mutual funds, mom and pop and grandma and grandpa can buy in. Um, that's all generally true. But there's also another big difference between the two, which is that hedge funds tend to get graded based on their return versus just the overall market based on their alpha. And again, we'll get into the meaning of this in a second, but keep that word in mind. Whereas mutual funds tend to get ranked and rated and their return gets measured based on their performance relative to an index. So when we talked about those industry-specific benchmark rates earlier, like the morning stars of the world giving us these benchmarks for different strategies and markets, if you're a mutual fund manager, that is pretty much exclusively how you're going to get measured. Now, the hedge fund world makes up for it in other ways. Of course, if you're an LP, if you're an investor looking to deploy your money into a hedge fund, you're not just going to look at the alpha, although that, again, is how they make their money. You're also, of course, going to look at sharp ratio and other benchmark rates. Agreed. No, these are all very great points. And so since you brought up alpha and uh, we're probably going to talk about beta, uh, let's talk about the Greeks, or as I like to say, good God, the Greeks are here. (laughs) All right. The Greeks, they've arrived. It's Greeks to me, baby. (laughs) Okay. So another little nerd moment. There is a recurring theme on all of these podcasts, Jill. Is there? Crypto? Right, but also, <laughs> but also that we're huge nerds. <laughs> so sad. Okay, so since this podcast is explaining um, valuation, we can't talk about performance and valuation without talking about the Greeks. Now, if you've been a financier, uh, you've likely heard terms like alpha and beta thrown around, and perhaps even things like delta, theta, gamma, rho, and vega. Now, if you want to sound like a bona fide financier, you can refer to these things as the Greeks, since these are Greek letters, after uh, all. Excuse me. Vega is not a Greek letter. This actually drives me crazy. People still refer to it as a Greek, but for, let the record show. <laughs> the Greeks also have Zama and Vama, which are definitely not Greeks. You have things like color, which is not a letter, but you know, a word. We're getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, though. <laughs> There's only two we really want to talk about today. We'll keep it very simple. And we'll focus on the two first letters of the Greek Greek alphabet, which are alpha and beta or A and B. So in mathematical finance, which is what I studied, um, the Greeks are widely used in tracked measures. And basically what each of these measures does is it measures the sensitivity of the value of a particular investment portfolio to small change in a given underlying parameter. So it's a way for investors to try to measure how their index or how their portfolio might perform if some of the factors in the general market or in the assets they're investing in change. So that's exciting. 
So yeah, so exactly. Greeks are used by portfolio managers to hedge their risk and to understand how their portfolio performance or their P&L, their profit and loss, will fluctuate as prices move. Again, we're not going to delve into all of those Greeks that Meltem just listed off, including Vega. Uh, But for those who are curious, we'll link you some reading materials in the Medium notes. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's just start at the beginning alpha and beta. So you too can be a financier. No Patagonia vest needed. Well, you can't even get a Patagonia vest anymore because apparently <laughs> Patagonia is not going to sell their vests to financial yeah, firms anymore. That's right. That's right. It's going to be all about Arcteryx now, folks. Yeah, you're going to have to go up market. Get that $500 vest, baby. <laughs> not just for startups anymore. So <laughs> alpha... I've mentioned it several times already. I apologize for introducing it without a definition, but we'll get into it now. Alpha is the excess return an investment or a portfolio of investment generates over and beyond a market index or a benchmark that represents the market's broader movements. So basically, alpha is your ability to, quote, beat the market. Some of you may follow the uh, publication, the online publication Seeking Alpha. This is what they're talking about. So, for example, let's say you want to buy Bitcoin, but you typically invest in the S&P 500 index. If the S&P index typically returns you 7% per year, or $7 per $100 invested, and Bitcoin returns you $7 for $100 invested, the alpha of your investment is zero because it perfectly tracked your baseline. Now let's say Bitcoin generated $7.70 per $100 invested. I don't know what alternate universe this is in where Bitcoin is that stable, but let's just say now its alpha would suddenly be 10% because every $100 you invested returned 10% more than your standard market rate, than your baseline, the S&P 500. That's right. So the reason people talk about alpha is it helps people define relative value. After all, investing is the art of making choices. How do you know if the choice you made was a good choice? You compare it to every other choice you could have made and then determine if it outperformed. If the alpha of your portfolio is zero, as Jill talked about with the example, then its returns match the market. That means that as an investment manager or as an individual investor, you neither added value or lost value. So your strategy has no intrinsic value. And in many cases, if a fund generates no alpha, then the manager does not get paid his or her performance fee of 20% on all returns. But they still get paid that 2%, that 2% management fee, right? The 2%, living on the 2, praying this, for the 20. This is this is why AUM is so critical, folks, because no, even if their alpha is zero, your investment manager still gets to keep 2% of the assets you give her or him. That's right. Um, And if your alpha is zero, it also indicates that the excess risk an investor took, like say buying Bitcoin, as opposed to owning a lower risk asset, like say the S&P 500 index or debt, and they didn't generate excess return, that means that they made a poor risk return bet by making that investment. Now, it's not just that simple, but it's a good framing. All right, let's introduce the next Greek. Do you want to introduce Beta, Jill? Beta. Yeah. So beta measures the volatility or how much the price of an asset or portfolio fluctuates in relation to the overall market. 
This helps investors determine how much risk they're willing to take to achieve the return for taking on said risk. The baseline number for beta is one, which indicates the security the securities price moves exactly as the market moves. So if someone says an asset has a beta of one, that means that when the overall market, again, let's just say the S&P 500 goes up 1%, we can expect that asset to also go up 1%. It moves in the same way that the market does. That's right. And investors looking for low-risk investments typically gravitate to low beta stocks. What that means is that the prices of these stocks will not fall quite as much as the overall market if it drops during a downturn. But conversely, that also applies in the other direction, meaning if the market rises in an upswing, the stocks won't rise as much in value. So these assets have a beta of under one, typically. Investors can use these beta figures to determine their personal, individual, optimal risk reward ratio for their portfolio. And likewise, higher risk investors will tend to seek out high beta investments where they're taking more risk for potential of higher reward. So if you're expecting the market to move up drastically because of some sort of macroeconomic event, say, for example, the US announcing a lowering of interest rates, then you might want to buy some high beta stocks that tend to move in a factor of two or three X compared to the average moves of the market. To give this a little more color, to give a couple of examples here. High beta stocks might include very high risk tech stocks, whereas low beta stocks might include things like healthcare stocks, where we know that there's going to be pretty consistent demand for them and for their products and for those companies, no matter what's going on in the overall market. They're not as dependent on discretionary spending. This is also why if you follow the markets at a high level and you follow where, say, the NASDAQ is trading versus the S&P 500, on up days, you'll often notice that the NASDAQ is up a few percent while the S&P 500 might be up just 1%. And on down days, similarly, the NASDAQ index, which again is full of high beta tech stocks, might be down a few percent when the S&P 500 is down one. This is because the NASDAQ, again, being technology stocks, they're much more discretionary, in many ways, much riskier, higher beta their beta is a multiple of what the S&P 500 is. That's right, Jill. So alpha and beta, hopefully what we've described is helpful. Um, I know there's a lot of jargon packed in there, but alpha and beta beta are something we're going to come back to because it is time. We've laid the groundwork. It is time to talk crypto. Jill, are you ready to just get super triggered? (laughs) Let's grind some gears. Let's go. Oh, crypto investing. All right. Crypto performance. This is more art than science for sure, Jill. So why does any of this matter? Who actually cares about any of this stuff? Well, I do. And to explain this, I want to introduce a fun little experiment called the Potato Fund. Jill, did you track the Potato Fund? I didn't track it, but I remember this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's funny is people actually thought it was a real fund and people... Yeah, it was ridiculous. We'll talk about the shenanigans. But but look, here's, here's what happened. As with all good things that happen in my life. So it was January of 2018, of course. I was in the office by myself at 4 a.m. because crypto markets were going 
crazy. And I was chatting with some friends on Telegram and I decided to start a little experiment, spend a little Bitcoin and figure out some stuff around performance by shitcoining. It was a bad idea in hindsight, um, as shitcoining always is, (laughs) but I wanted to run an experiment and see how it would perform. So here's what I did with the potato fund. I picked 10 coins based on their logos and I did a little logo wall. They're very cute. Um, And I also looked at the hype and number of other silly factors and I constructed this arbitrary portfolio of 10 coins. I then tracked the performance of that portfolio. I didn't trade it. I did nothing with it. I just held it. I tracked the performance of that portfolio in absolute US dollar terms, Bitcoin terms, and Ether terms over a 300-day period. And then ultimately, I sold the assets for a massive tax loss at the end of 2018. So RIP potato fund. But here's what the experiment demonstrated, right? At certain points of the potato fund, I was gaining value in US dollar terms, but losing value in Bitcoin terms. Now, as an investor, I only care about having more Bitcoin, right? Why do people buy other coins typically? It's to accumulate more of the thing that's actually valuable, which is Bitcoin. If US dollars are the fuel for liquidity in global markets, Bitcoin is the fuel for liquidity in crypto markets. And so even though my portfolio may have been up in US dollar terms, I was losing Bitcoin, which was upsetting. Now, was it up in US dollar terms though? After all, it was the potato fund. Well, there was a brief blip in January where it was up <laughs> a few days and then began its long decline down. But then at some points in time, it was actually up in Bitcoin terms and Ether terms because these assets were dropping 80, 90% in value you, whereas um, the portfolio itself, some of these assets only dropped 70%. And so again, what is the right benchmark to use? How do you actually track performance? Obviously, we know that the potato fund did not perform well, although it did outperform some well-known crypto funds, which was very funny. Um, Oh, dear. Yeah, we won't say any names. Not nice. My mother taught me to be nice, so I will be nice. But look, here's what the experiment highlighted for me. How do you even figure out where you're supposed to be picking to compare to? I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to push back for a second because you say that uh, what mattered to you was accumulating more Bitcoin. That's all well and good, but it comes back to something that I, I used to call it the Porsche problem. Now I think I'll call it the Lambo problem. But if I can't go out and buy a luxury car with my Bitcoin, which let's be honest, most luxury car dealerships, maybe in San Francisco they do, will not accept Bitcoin, then I want USD, baby. That's what I care about. So I want my portfolio gaining value in US dollar terms. I know this is going to ruffle the feather of some of the Bitcoin maximalists who listen to this because they would agree with you. All I care about is accumulating more Bitcoin. But this disagreement, I think, goes to show some of the issues that we're talking about here of what even is supposed to be your benchmark. Right. Right. But it's this is, again, it's relative. It's highly personal. But I really want to stress here that for individual investors, think for a minute. How do you think about how your crypto portfolio is performing? I took a bunch of risk by buying these shit coins and it didn't get me any more Bitcoin. So arguably, my strategy did not perform as intended. But say, for example, you buy a mix of crypto assets and you hold them with the hopes that they'll accrue value. 
Are you going to use Bitcoin as your reference point? Because ultimately, most of these assets you can't sell for US dollars. You can only sell them for Bitcoin and then sell your Bitcoin for US dollars. So you're taking risk at all of these different layers. There's relative exchange rates at all of these different layers and in these different transactions and these asset to asset conversions. And so if you don't have a strategy for how you're going to measure your performance going in, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to do a good job performing. Right. And so so let's give maybe just a more cogent example. As much as I love the potato fund, let's say you invest US dollars into a crypto fund at the start of 2018. And at the end of 2018, let's just say that fund has lost 30 cents of every dollar. I feel like that's probably being generous, but we'll go with it. <laughs> so in absolute US dollar terms, you've lost money. You've lost 30 cents of every dollar you invested. But let's say the fund accounts for performance relative to the price of Bitcoin. And let's say in BTC terms, the fund is up 40% because its portfolio is worth more in Bitcoin than it was at the start of 2018. Because let's remember, the price of Bitcoin is now 75% lower. Is in that a good terms. investment? In dollar terms, exactly. Is yep. that a good investment? I mean, let's say in an even more extreme case, the fund accounts for performance relative to the price of ETH. And in ETH terms, the fund is up 70% because the price of ETH is now 90% lower than it was at the start of the year. What's the right way to view performance? What's the right way to get me a Lambo? I don't know. <laughs> uh, probably not investing in shit coins. <laughs> the game is young. The managers are early in this game. And again, it's all relative. So one important thing to stress here as we're talking about benchmarks and how you might think about performance of a crypto investing strategy is this. No benchmark will ever be perfect ever. And just like hedge fund managers in the legacy world of finance play games to juice performance, you can expect that crypto fund managers are going to do the same. Now, moreover, if you evaluate the risk profile, the time horizon of the investment, and the asset composition of a crypto portfolio, it's going to be even more challenging to try to figure out what the right benchmarks are. So let's just noodle for a minute, Jill, on some of the benchmarks that we're seeing emerge in the crypto space. How do we actually begin to define what RM or the market rate of return might be for a crypto investment? Uh, the vagaries of crypto benchmarks. So start <laughs> with the risk-free rate. So in crypto, what is the general rate of return for holding a dollar, holding a Bitcoin? Is holding a Bitcoin the risk-free rate? Oh God! <laughs> Does like every every instinct in my body is saying no? I mean, it might be a benchmark, but I think it's certainly not a riskless asset. But it's timely that we're talking about this because. <laughs> I was just reading today about something that's recently been introduced by the open finance community, although I, I thought they were called DeFi. I honestly can't keep up with the branding. Well, I thought it was DopeFi. DopeFi. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> DopeFi, DeFi, open finance, one of them came out recently with something called, I can't even say this without- oh Dipor. 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 Versus LIBOR. So instead of LIBOR, which was that London interbank overnight rate, they want to introduce DIPOR, which what does it stand for? Decentralized Interprotocol Offered Rate. Which I just, I just, I, just, I can't. It's time. It's it's time for. It's time for them to change their DIPOR. Sorry, I had to say it. Okay. 
So a couple of days ago, members of the open finance community came out with this thing called Dipor. Okay, that's enough enough childish jokes about it. Um, the idea here is to lay some foundations for formalizing a risk-free rate. And I think more specifically, the idea is to give the MakerDAO team another data point by which they can adjust their stability fee, which is something that... Uh, basically allows them to tweak sort of their monetary policy and the incentive alignment around how much die gets issued or redeemed, which is obviously super important to their stability mechanism. Um, now, okay, what is Dipor? Dipor, I'm just going to read from, from this article from the block. Dipor is an on-chain oracle for the volume-weighted average borrow interest rate for specific cryptocurrencies. Now, as far as I can tell, this is only relevant right now to MakerDAO to DAI. Um, right. Now, to break that down, what does that mean? So there are all of these different interest rate and borrowing platforms that are starting to exist in crypto, right? We'll get more into that in a second. Now, each of these different platforms and each of these different assets mm -hmm. has a different borrowing rate. It's super fragmented right now, which, I mean, makes for some really interesting arbitrage opportunities. If you follow Max Bronstein on Twitter, he's always coming out with what to me kind of hilariously look like the type of trade ideas that I had to come up with as an intern on the trading desk. Uh, but for the crypto world where it's like, oh, well, if you lend on this platform at X percent and then you can borrow right. the same thing back at Y percent. You can make the X minus Y spread and blah, blah, blah. Like right. that's great. And so Dipor is trying to bring some transparency and st some standardization but, to this. But here's my issue with that, Jill. And this goes back to risk versus reward, right? In LIBOR, there is an implicit guarantee because we're talking about trusted financial institutions. In Dipor, there is nothing. There is a whole lot of risk you're taking. And in a lot of cases, the risk actually can't be properly quantified or even conceptually qualified because you don't actually know much about the true state of what's going on in these networks, right? I'm we talked about this, Meltem, though, because if you think about what I talked about, about the LIBOR OIS basis, the spread mm -hmm. there and how it blew out in 2008. And it's also blown out a few times since then, not to the same yeah. degree. But yeah, okay, it's all well and good to say, oh, we're talking about these trusted financial institutions with LIBOR, with OIS. Are they really? I mean, okay, yes, they're better than Dipor. I'm, I'm not going to try and contend that they should be held on the same level. But right. there's no real reason why we should just say, oh, like LIBOR and OIS, those things are trusted and therefore more stable and therefore more legitimate. Because as long as we have some transparency around it, around what these things are and what the data sure. sources are, in many ways, actually, Dipor, at least the prices are, they may be manipulated, but at least they're somewhat transparent. And that manipulation is known to the market, which is more exactly. than LIBOR could say. Right. Well, a lot of the rates are set in the same way that LIBOR was set, which is via conference call or agreement amongst a small group of insiders who hold the majority of the assets. I mean, or it's literally conference call. Yeah. Yeah. That's how MakerDAO decided to increase its interest rate to try to stabilize DAI. But here's my second issue with DAI poor is lending is one thing, but a lot of the 
rates that are being used um, in crypto lending markets are not actually interest rates. They are inflation rates. So if we're Mm -hmm. talking about earning a staking reward, you are earning inflation. You are trying to preserve your pro rata share of the network. So here's the example, right? So people talk, so when the Coinbase article came out about them allowing custody clients to basically point their delegation address to a Coinbase baker, a Coinbase run Baker. Um, and they said, oh, our investors will now earn 6% interest, uh, yield, sorry, on that. That's totally the wrong characterization. They are maintaining their pro rata share of the network. And actually not even, they're losing money because they're paying Coinbase about half of the reward they should be getting. Because what happens is if an investor owns, let's say, a million tezzies, and for the sake of argument, let's say there are only 100 million tezzies that exist. So if an investor owns 1 million, they own effectively 1% of the network. Let's say every year, 5 million tezzies are minted at a 5% rate as a reward for people for securing the network, right? Incentivizing people to run bakers. In fact, at the end of year one, if that investor doesn't now have 5% more tezzies, if they didn't earn that full 5% reward, their pro rata ownership of the network has gone down. I either purchasing power, which takes us full circle to what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode. Exactly. I I want to make a differentiation here though, Melton, because what you're talking about is staking. And yes, absolutely. People often confuse the staking reward for an interest rate, which it's not. But what Divor is talking about, and to their credit, I think think that they get this right here. They're talking about the rate for lending and borrowing on different lending platforms. So presumably, I don't know for certain, but presumably what they're using are things like Compound or Dharma um, or maybe some of, yeah, or DYDX, certainly maybe even some of the centralized platforms. I'm not sure where they're pulling from, but that's that lending rate. That actually is an interest rate, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, again, to your point, the transparency around it is important. Again, I think um, with transparency in the crypto ecosystem is kind of a misnomer sometimes because you can have a lot of transparency at how the rate for the mechanism itself, i.e. DIPOR or, you know, in the legacy world, LIBOR is set. But you still in crypto, I think, because these networks um, and these projects are so tightly controlled, owned by just a small handful of individuals who own the majority of assets in the protocols, I think you're just shifting the manipulation from the actual setting of the rate to the setting of the individual rates on the individual platforms, which arguably is not very transparent, right? So again, I think it is a step in the right direction. I would just be hesitant to say that it eliminates all room for manipulation because as we know, humans are infinitely crafty and show me a game and I will show you a way to play it. (laughs) I'll show you a way to cheat. (laughs) That's the genius of markets. We've been doing that since the dawn of financial markets. Okay. So, so look, we're not really sure on interest rate, but we have this new concept of DIPOR. Each individual lending market has its own rate. But again, going back to this concept of the risk-free rate, we really don't have a cogent idea of what the risk-free rate might be. And maybe the risk-free rate is just zero. I'm not really sure. The risk-free rate might just be holding Bitcoin, which then makes the risk-free rate some sort of market rate. And the reason this matters so much is without industry consensus on the risk-free rate, many financial engineering problems are really hard to solve. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I'm going to sell someone options or synthetic derivatives of some sort, without having a risk-free rate and an interest rate, 
I can't really calculate how I should price that contract. That's right. People are so excited about synthetics. Synthetics as they relate to crypto, synthetics as they can be issued on a blockchain, blah, blah, blah. Well, as they relate to crypto, things are going to get really hairy here until we can come to some kind of industry standard and consensus. And that's what all a lot of this is, right? There's no sort of uh, social edict from on high that's someday going to tell us what the risk-free rate is. It's really just industry consensus and standards and norms. Exactly. But again, if everyone's using a different rate to price a contract, what you're going to start to see is a massive divergence in how these contracts get called. And as we know, as we've learned from the world of traditional finance, when these contracts become exceedingly complex and people start using all sorts of different rates, then one market event can have a cataclysmic event and trigger trigger pardon all sorts of calls, trigger all sorts of liquidations. Um, we've seen this on one of our favorite marketplaces for derivatives, BitMEX. <laughs> <laughs> happened in conventional markets in 2008 as well, right? Where it suddenly mattered a lot whether you were using OIS or LIBOR to yep. price your contract. Exactly. And this caused mass chaos and confusion across some of these desks that were peddling in these really structured synthetic products. Well, that's why I look forward to the coming um, financial engineering wave that's hitting crypto. I feel like a lot of people are discovering (laughs) financial engineering for the first time. Like This has been an industry for a long time, and I think a lot of people are not looking at history. A lot of people don't necessarily, you know, spend some of this time exploring, thinking about how That's why we're here, Meltem, (laughs) so we can talk about it. But also, you know, I do want to give more credit than that to people because there are a lot of folks who have come from the conventional finance world who are working on these problems. Um, If you look at UMA Protocol, that team, they were actually former colleagues of mine at Goldman, Dan Robinson. I mean, he worked on the legal side, but he just came out with the Rainbow Network, which is all about synthetic swaps. We talked about it a couple episodes ago. Well, and let's talk about the real players here. I'm not just talking about, you know, these on-chain derivatives concepts. There are option shops here in New York that I've been working with to create inside order books for options. We've been talking about creating all sorts of new synthetic constructions. This is not new. There are a lot of really smart people who come from this world. But once again, I think it's just important to be aware of some of the challenges that we are going to face, um, particularly if we create contracts where we're not thinking about performance in the right way, Mm -hmm. because these parameters may seem like they don't matter, but they matter a lot. All right, so enough on interest rate. Let's talk about the market rate of return. So in the U.S. investment market, we use the S&P 500. But if you're investing in crypto, what's your reference market rate of return? So I'm an LP in several crypto funds. (laughs) Don't judge me. I also, um, with CoinShares, you know, we have private strategies or private hedge funds we manage. And so the question for us is always, well, what is the market rate of return we want to compare ourselves to? Is it Bitcoin? Is it Ether? Uh, Bloomberg teamed up with Galaxy to create the Bloomberg Galaxy Mm -hmm. Index, the BBGI. Bitwise has the whole 10, um, which many funds use as a benchmark rate. But what is the right market rate of return? What is the most representative return of every dollar, every Bitcoin invested and what it would return on and average? What do you think? So what I think is probably Bitcoin is is the fair market rate of return. And, and 
And why Bitcoin? So there are a few reasons for why. One is because if you're going to compare to what sort of the average person would put their money into if they weren't putting it into your bespoke strategy fund, in US equities, it's the S&P 500. They would open a Vanguard account and buy S&P 500 index shares. When it comes to crypto markets, what the average person is going to put their money into, they're going to open a Coinbase account and put it into Bitcoin. Right, they're not going to try and allocate it across like the top five assets by market cap according to on-chain effects. Like, well, right. no, they're going to put it in Bitcoin. So that's the first thing. But the second thing, which is the even more thing, important, and I think you're going to say the liquidity. same thing: liquidity. Exactly. Liquidity. Go yeah. for it. It's the big asset, and we talked about this episode 13 on interoperability, episode 14 on liquidity. People who are listening, maybe starting to see each trend here to the way we put these episodes together. Um, There is a point to all of this craziness, but it is all about the asset that you use to get into and out of asset pairs and where liquidity flows. And right now, the reality of the matter is, is if you want to trade a crypto asset, the majority of crypto assets, aside from a small handful, are only accessible through the Bitcoin trade pair. That's That's right. The last thing that's just coming to mind for me here. So the first is the sort of shelling point issue of people are just going to gravitate towards Bitcoin. The second is liquidity. And the third is a lot of these indexes, like most of the crypto market trades with Bitcoin anyway. At least if it's not manipulated, a lot of the crypto assets that don't trade, that deviate from Bitcoin in terms of how they trade in terms of the price. They're probably manipulated or else, I mean, in some cases, certainly, you know, something is launched or they've had an exciting new event. Or they're responding to an event, Exactly. There's some sort of- There are exceptions. I'm not saying that every crypto asset that doesn't trade with Bitcoin is just manipulated, but for the most part. Let's use the Greeks here. Let's use the Greeks to describe that behavior. And this is my fundamental problem with an index strategy. And we've actually done a lot of research with um, Imperial and some other traditional macro hedge funds have participated in this research and sponsored the PhD student's part in doing it, is most assets in crypto have a beta of one to Bitcoin. If -hmm. Bitcoin goes up 1%, the asset goes up close to 1%. Crypto is still really, really highly correlated because there aren't so many distinguishing fundamentals that make assets different from one another, right? One of my biggest gripes, in fact, is that people have created this arbitrary category called privacy coins. Like that to me is so arbitrary because every coin has the ability to implement privacy preserving features. And so to me, like the nascent categorization of crypto assets is very reminiscent of the challenges you face in traditional markets where you try to lump things into categories that are distinct and unique. And this is part of set theory and category theory in math, right? How do you lump things into groups that have similar behavior? And in this world, most things are correlated to Bitcoin, highly correlated. So if diversification is not possible, the point of using an index is kind of lost. Totally. All right. So Anyways, we've we've grabbed right some gears on interest rate, on market rate of return. What are the other options out there? Benchmark rate. Uh, there's benchmark rate, oh, right? Right, right? So this actually goes back to um, what I focus on. So crypto asset management is a very new area. And as someone who runs strategies for a crypto asset manager, these challenges are things I think about all the time. How do I know if I'm a good manager? Well, luckily, um, we have the emergence of peer benchmarking. There's a new fund of funds called Vision Hill that's begun to initiate a quarterly crypto strategy tracker, where I think they have over 400 
120 crypto funds or funds that are deploying some sort of crypto strategy that they're tracking and reporting on in the form of an aggregated benchmark. Um, you'll also note that Prequin, which historically has provided data on venture fund and hedge fund performance, they're typically geared towards sort of the illiquid market. They've carved out a new subsection for crypto fund reporting in their quarterly reports. So we're starting to see again the <laughs> Yeah, just a little bit of it. But look, um, again, what then goes back to is, well, how do you compare apples to apples, mm-hmm. right? If I have a long hold only strategy, how do I compare that to a long short strategy an actively traded strategy? Or in some cases, we're now seeing the emergence of a moral short activist strategy, um, similar to what Carson Block at Muddy Waters does, which I love. But look, Comparing apples to apples is really hard. Knowing whether or not someone is doing a good job is really hard. How do you figure out if an asset manager is adding any value? Should you just have held Bitcoin? It's going to take a while for all of this to play. And so I want to get a little bit more into the the brass tacks here of how are fund managers benchmarking themselves, Melton? Yeah, so I think the the primary mechanism is look, nope, there is no ideal benchmark. So right now, most of what you see in the reporting from these funds is you see four or five benchmarks being used. Obviously, there's US dollar terms because that's what most investors invested with is US dollars. Then you see Bitcoin as a comparison point, you see Ether as a comparison point, you'll typically see the whole 10 or the BBGI, some form of index. And again, I don't need to gripe anymore on why I think it's still a little early for indices, but people are trying and look, it's going to take a village. And at some point, indices will certainly become relevant as we see a wider range of assets with very different performance characteristics and very different risk reward characteristics emerge. Um, And then I think there is also one thing I focus on a lot, which is how do you even determine the price of an asset? So do you want to just detour briefly into price with me? Let's go back to liquidity. Yeah. Okay. So here's one thing that really, really grinds my gears. So if you're a crypto fund or a crypto manager or even an investor, right? Let's say you invested in a SAFT or an ICO or a contract that is illiquid. Most of these people are holding this asset on their books at the cost of capital. Meaning if you bought something for a dollar token in peak crypto mania in 2017, you're still holding it at a dollar token. Even though if that protocol launched right now and you got those tokens right now, you probably would only be able to sell them for 10 cents Mm -hmm. on the dollar. Now you're getting paid on that marked up value of $1 per coin. You're not taking a liquidity discount. And this to me is so ridiculous. It's it's a total crime. And, you know, I I suspect that over the long run, this is going to come back and bite all of the fund managers who aren't marking it down because they're just suddenly someday as they go through liquidation have to mark it down tens of percents in one fell swoop. But there's also the chance that they just get away with it. Well, but this is where, in my view, the crypto bear market is not over until people start taking right. markdowns. And by the way, this is something called a liquidity haircut, right? Under standard accounting rules and Basel III rules, certain types of assets that are illiquid get marked down 10, 40, 70, or in some cases, even 100%. Meaning if you're a fund manager and you hold an asset that is extremely illiquid and for which there is no market, that asset is priced at 30 cents on the dollar. 
And the reason why is because of market fundamentals and liquidity, right? So we discussed this in episode 15 on forks. We discussed it in episode 14 on liquidity. Prices in crypto are really difficult to pin down. Most venues aren't even sufficiently liquid to provide a reliable price in size. That's right. And, so and you know, th- this isn't just you and me sort of waving our canes and being angry grandmas about it, right? This is <laughs> this is us thinking about how financial markets function today, what would be considered effectively fraud or at least misleading within conventional financial markets, but also admitting, you know, prices in crypto, as you just said, are really difficult to figure out. But so are prices in a lot of bespoke and alternative asset classes. But here's the issue is there is no incentive for people to reflect the accurate market price of something. And the reason why is because of this performance fee component. People get paid on the perception of how they're doing. And if there is no way for an investor to price something or get a market benchmark for something, then you're really trusting the manager. This, by the way, is not just a crypto problem. It's also a venture problem. The reason you see VCs doing these rounds at crazy valuations isn't just because they're nuts. It's because the higher the unrealized value of their portfolio is, the higher the 2% they get paid on that portfolio is. And there's going to be, in my view, a massive bubble that pops when a bunch of VC firms who have crazy returns on paper are not able to actually materialize that return as these IPOs go bust or some of these companies never go bust. That's what I was just going to say. There's going to be a reckoning at some point because at some point, investors, LPs want their money back. It might be a 10-year time horizon. But for a lot of these crypto funds that didn't set up as venture-style funds, they set up as hedge funds because everyone wanted to be a hedge fund manager two years ago. Guess what? Those redemptions are going to come due a lot sooner. And when redemptions happen, you need liquidity. So people have already been redeeming, but here's the interesting thing. So if you're a fund manager and someone redeems, you can do this thing with your illiquid portfolio and you can put it in something called a Mm -hmm. side pocket. A side pocket is a separate vehicle that holds your illiquid assets and you could create a side pocket for each investment you do that's illiquid. But what you're seeing right now is you have some crypto funds who have close to 50%, if not more, of their AUM in a side pocket that's illiquid. And people have to keep paying management fees on that side pocket, right? So while I may be able to redeem my Bitcoin and my ETH and my other liquid assets out of the fund, my funds are trapped in that side pocket. The ugly, man. We've covered the good, we've covered the bad, and now we're into the ugly. But look, this isn't anything new. So I want to take you back to 2015, right? One of the challenges we were working on at the time um, with Grayscale, for example, with the Bitcoin Investment Trust, which had just started trading on the OTCQX was, well, how do you set a daily NAV or net asset value? How do you set a daily spot price for a Bitcoin? It's a one time a day reference point. And typically in most assets, it's 4 p.m., right? Market close price of an asset is the daily close price that's used. Some people use average daily open. Some people use a blended um, value. But most people use daily close to mark the nav of, say, a mutual fund, an index fund that holds multiple different stocks across multiple different markets. But how do you do that in Bitcoin? Markets trade 24-7. There are 50 different exchanges. They're trading in various currency pairs, right? You will have some markets that are trading US dollars, some that are trading in one. How do you actually figure it out? 
So the answer in crypto to date, what you see when you go on coinmarketcap.com and look at the price is an average in US dollar terms across the top five exchanges with the highest liquidity. And so the challenge becomes, as we've talked about, Jill, if you're trading on a market that's highly liquid or there's a massive price deviation in some market because of um, an imbalance in supply and demand, for example, what happened in Korea in 2017 where Bitcoin was trading at a 40 to 50% premium on a daily basis, your price metric can get Mm -hmm. way out of whack. And then the way you charge people for performance can get way out of whack. So Again, it's just highlighting just how immature this market is, but it's also highlighting, look, this isn't a problem that's unique just to crypto. Because price is relative, because performance is relative, it's a game. This is a game that we're playing. And I do think, to your point, that people are trying to use these attributes of blockchains, the fact that you know these ledgers are transparent and public, and you can see market activity, you can see on-chain activity, the fact that you know there is a lot of data out there. People are trying to be more intelligent about designing relative price measures and relative value metrics that are more transparent and less Completely. I just don't know how successful we'll we'll see we'll see (laughs) I I mean I think that you know we talk a lot about oh DeFi same as the old Fi and I stand by that DeFi open Fi dope Fi whatever whatever the the nomenclature the kids are using these days is it's it's going to have a lot of challenges it's facing a lot of the same challenges that old finance faces and has faced for years. There are a lot of lessons there from old finance that DeFi can take and run with. But I think that we're already starting to see the ways in which they're doing some of that. And we get a lot of questions on Twitter and in the comments, et cetera, of, wait, are you guys are you guys bullish DeFi or not or whatever? And I actually really am. I can't speak for you, Melton, but I think that you are in a lot of ways as well because of some of these ways in which we're starting to see DeFi take on these lessons from old Fi and and actually start to confront them in a really meaningful way. And we can make fun of the the name Dipor. We can, you know, we can ask questions. We can ask questions. Can I make one more Dipor joke? I want to make one Dipor joke. Okay. What happens with sharding in Dipor? I'm cutting that. (laughs) I'm telling the guys to cut that. But DeFi... (laughs) is taking some of the lessons from old Fi here, right? In terms of transparency, in terms of uh, being able to communicate to the market what is what is going on and where where you know they haven't yet made it totally clear where all of the data points that they're pulling for Dipor are coming from. But as they do that over time, I'm actually optimistic that it could actually right. meet the same standards, if not surpass that that we've come to expect from OldFi. Right. I guess the final closing note I'll make is: Look, history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. One of the things I've long been fascinated by in markets is how we think about performance, how we think about value, how we think about price. How do we know if we're doing a good job? And so my whole goal with this podcast, and I think, Jill, our inspiration when we have a lot of these conversations, the reason things grind my gears is not because I don't think people are trying to do the right thing, not because I think people are being dumb about things. 
I am just trying to bring a different perspective to the world of crypto that allows us to be a little bit more analytical around what we're consuming. So these ideas around benchmarks, these ideas around alpha and beta, how you measure whether the risk you took was compensated with excess reward, how you determine whether an investment manager is actually doing something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. I care about this because I want people to be empowered with information so that they can make good choices, so that they can make informed choices. To me, look, everybody is going to play games. I think um, you know people have a right to do whatever they want. This is, after all, about permissionless innovation. And if that is truly the case, then I think you know one of these inherent tensions is if they're bad actors, but the system permits that to exist, then what are you going to do about it, right? This is an opt-in system. Nobody's telling anyone, nobody's holding a gun to anyone's head and saying, buy this coin or buy this crypto fund. But all I want to do is just provide people a new way to think about these things more analytically, ask the right questions, look at the right ideas, and just be a little bit thoughtful. Ask questions. Don't just accept what people tell you at face value, because a lot of this isn't new. It is just a rethink or redesign of something that's existed, something we've been trying to solve in the legacy world in different ways through these different things like LIBOR, right? Like um, benchmark rates, like industry benchmark reports, like the Sharpe ratio. These are things we have been doing for decades. But what excites me is we now have new, more interesting ways of, of doing them. So that, that's my take. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Thanks again to our sponsors this week, Celsius Network. As a reminder, head over to Celsius and use the code GEARS when signing up to get free Bitcoin when you deposit more than $500. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends, or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.